Welcome to the Inside Duke Anesthesiology Podcast, where we take you behind the curtain for one-on-one interviews with experts in our department and across Duke to discuss how we're changing the face of anesthesiology. Now here's your host, Stacey Hilton. Hi everyone, I'm Stacey Hilton. Welcome to the Inside Duke Anesthesiology Podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Gadsden, Chief of the Orthopedics, Plastics, and Regional Anesthesiology Division. Dr. Gadsden, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Stacey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So I'd like to start each discussion by having our guests give us a snapshot of what I call your Duke story. Duke story. Yeah. So I guess, you know, in 2014, I was looking for a change in scenery. Um, We had four young kids under five years of age and apartment living in Hell's Kitchen, New York City was not as glamorous as it once was at that point. (laughs) Um, All of our families in Canada. And so having no geographical ties, we ended up looking around, um, you know, widely. And I had been down to Duke to give grand rounds back in 2009 and knew a little bit about the department in general. And of course, the reputation of both the department and the regional division was outstanding. And uh, I had known Stuart Grant from before, and he was he was instrumental in in me making the decision to come down and, and join Duke. And he's he's been a great friend uh, ever since. Um I wanted to join a team that had a had a track record um, of of excellence in regional anesthesia, and and um, you know so I wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, but at the same time, I wanted an environment with like a growth mindset, and and so it was obvious to me that Duke was one of those places where things were possible and just got done. So there was you know room to room to grow and explore and do research and and. Uh, that sort of thing. So that that's kind of how I ended up here, and I've, I've loved it ever since. And of course, the the area is wonderful too. I mean, growing up in Canada, uh, we do not miss the winters. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, great weather, especially if you love trails and you know being being active outdoors. It's excellent. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we we came down um, to interview in I think it was December or so, and. We saw people swimming in an outdoor pool, and it just sort of blew our mind uh, that that was possible. (laughs) Well, anyone who follows yourself or Duke Anesthesiology on Twitter, they certainly should have seen posts about the new social media educational initiative that you and your division launched in October, very appropriately called Blocktober, which proved to be a huge success. So tell us a little bit about that initiative and the goal behind it. Yeah, well, um, you know, 2020 has has been a challenging year for so many reasons. But I think as the months wore on, we really began to miss travel and connecting in person with colleagues at meetings. And I, I mean, I just missed my friends from other places, really. So so a large part of Blocktober was an effort to reconnect with people dynamically over social media. Um, I have to give Brian Chow, our resident, the credit for the name. He came up with it last year. Um, I was I was sitting in the block area, and he was te- he's September, so he was telling me he'd be joining us the next month uh, in in the regional area. And I I said jokingly, okay, so instead of October, we'll make that Rocktober. And he shot right back, oh, you mean Blocktober? <laughs> and I was like, oh my god, that's amazing. Why didn't I think of that? So, so I knew I wanted to do something with that name. <clears throat> and as, as summer 2020 wore on, it kind of took shape and it started small. We thought, okay, we could, we could tweet out like a regional anesthesia pearl every day, but it sort of quickly morphed into, all right, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. And we ended up with this collection of instructional videos and incredible engagement worldwide. 
Just to give our listeners the numbers, this month-long free open access educational event generated more than 38 million impressions from 5,000 participants across six continents. Those are some big numbers. Are you surprised by that engagement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a in a big way, yes, because I don't think I'm all that adept at social media. So to, to see that reach was really eye-opening. And, um, you know, I think I suffered from a, a, a different impression of what social media could do in terms of engagement in the medical community. And I think, you know, mine and some other people's impressions of social media was that there's a lot of junk and opinion. And, and certainly there is a lot of that. But what became evident was that if you do post useful content, there's an incredible thirst for it and people loved it. Um, and so I think to me, the most rewarding thing was was seeing people chime in and discuss these topics from Singapore, from South Africa, from Brazil, Australia, UK. It was it was thrilling to to wake up every morning and see what people had to say and contribute on Twitter on that particular topic overnight. Um, so the, the engagement was, was incredible. And I'm, I'm just really grateful and humbled by it. And what do you think the main takeaways were from Blocktober? And do you think it is something that you'll continue to do each year? Uh, yeah, we, you know, we, we talk about how the, the average time from medical innovation to adoption is measured in years. But we saw people changing their practice over the course of the month. At, you know, trying to new techniques and reporting back on their successes, things that they learned during the early part of the month that they were able to say, yeah, we've, we've tried these blocks in our, in our practice in, you know, wherever they lived and, and, uh, and they're working and thanks so much. This is great. And that, that was fascinating to me and, and also humbling. And, and so it's, it's truly, you know, we're truly in a see one, do one, tweet one world now, uh, which has pros and cons. Um, but for sure, Blocktober 2021 is going to be a thing and the topics are being, uh, you know, decided on now. And we're currently debating over what kind of music video will be the capper, maybe like a bluegrass one. I don't know. We're, we're, we're going to keep that one a secret for now. Yes. And if you aren't following him yet, please follow Jeff Gadsden on Twitter so you can see all of the, uh, social media educational activity. It's, you're very creative on social media, I will say. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I do feel like a, a noob still to a certain extent. Well, changing topics a little bit here, we're obviously currently facing another wave of the novel coronavirus, and anesthesiologists have been on the front line since the very beginning of it. What has your experience been like to this point, and how do you think COVID-19 has impacted the practice of your subspecialty? Yeah, I I mean it's it's been a long year, um, but I and I feel fortunate for so many things. Um, but one of them is that our department has been able to lead the effort to keep perioperative patients and ourselves safe. You know, when it all went down in February and March, it was it was anesthesiology who put together the protocol that we still follow, and came up with the idea of marshals and researched the correct time to ensure proper air handling and all that kind of stuff. So it was. It's 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 a point of pride for I think all of us in anesthesi in our Duke anesthesiology department that we were the ones that pushed this forward and and uh, and created guidance for the nurses, the surgeons, and all that kind of stuff. So it was a, it was a true team effort, and it was it, it was a, a po one of the positive points of twenty twenty twenty. If there, however few they may be, um, 
And in terms of the you know our division, I'll be honest. I feel grateful that our division is is always valued for our skill set, and that's never been more obvious than during COVID. Um, you know, to bring a patient to the operating room suite and induce general anesthesia involves a lot of moving pieces: personnel, expertise, additional PPE, recovery time, etc. And to be able to avoid an airway generating procedure like intubation saves time, it saves money, it saves personnel, and it's potentially safer for staff if you just not, don't have um, that, that intubation and extubation happening in the operating room. There, there has been a lot written, including a recent editorial in the British Journal of Anesthesia, um, highlighting the role that regional anesthesia plays in caring for these COVID surgical patients. And it's exciting to be able to help in that way. And personally, you know, I've been able to look after um, a handful of people <clears throat> that have had COVID but needed something done surgically is fairly urgently that uh, that we could do with either a spinal anesthetic or a peripheral nerve block alone. And, you know, I was the one that put them in the wheelchair at the end of the case and pushed them out the door to the ambulance or to their car, and which is kind of cool. I mean, um, rather than, you know, having them have to recover in the operating room or the or somewhere else and involve a lot more people and possible touch points for exposure so so it's been it's been it's been fun um uh, being able to exercise our 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 skill set and and create value in in a otherwise grim time yeah now your division is one of the premier regional anesthesiology and acute pain medicine divisions in the entire country. So explain how the faculty in your division really continue to push the boundaries of the subspecialty. Uh, thanks for saying that. I, we we do try. Um, I think at the at the core of it, uh, we have a shared passion for what we do, and and that leads naturally to questions being asked. You know, how can we improve X? What if we did Y? And it's you know, it's not uncommon to find us at the end of the day in the block area scanning each other or challenging our current practices, you know, pouring over a, a just hot off the press research paper and, and seeing how that fits in with what our ideas of acute pain medicine and regional anesthesia are. Um, it's important to each one of us in our division that no patient getting a total joint in the country is getting better anesthetic care than with our team. Um, and so it's a it's it's a it's a belief in excellence, and that we should we should be we we have the tools and the and the expertise to be at the at the tip of the spear in terms of of where acute pain medicine is is going. Um, you know, genicular nerve blocks are an example of that type of innovation that we were the ones that pushed pushed that out there in the community, and they're now being picked up by other groups. And we've got data to show that they they reduce opioid consumption after total knee replacement. Um, and so it's, uh, again, gratifying that, that we have a group of people that have that shared passion um, and, and that takes on a life of its own. And speaking of innovations, you were recently featured in an article about awake spine surgery here at Duke, which only a handful of surgeons I read offer throughout the United States. So talk about the anesthetic advances that your team here at Duke offers to make this type of surgery possible. Yeah. So to, to be fair, I mean, this is um, not something that we invented per se, but it's more of a case of an idea whose time had come. And there was a lot of sort of things that came together at the right time. So you know, people have done spinal anesthetics for surgery, spine surgery in the past, um, but they're not all that popular for, for a number of reasons. And I think part of the key to making it successful here at Duke was the addition of the 
erector spinae plane or ESP block. And that's a, it's a peripheral nerve block technique where we put local anesthetic deep to the, um, the muscles that are, that run either side of the spine. And, uh, and so that in combination with the spinal anesthetic allowed for, and some sedation allowed for the patient to, to, to wake up as if they'd had a colonoscopy or something at, at, at the end of their case. And when the spinal wears off, they're comfortable. Um, they don't have to take a lot of opioids. They don't have to stay overnight for their, for their back pain in, in the same way that they would have otherwise. So it was that combination of those, those two techniques that came together uh, to allow us to do that. And it was, it was interesting. It was really kind of a, um, a patient that pushed that through at the very, at the very outset um, and, and sort of forced our hand in that way. Um, and then once we saw that, yeah, actually, no, this is, this is a really good idea. Why aren't we doing this more? This is, it's been, it's taken off. And I think we're now at about uh, 60 or so odd cases of, of doing this with the, with the erector spinal plane block um, and getting, and getting great results. So we're about to do embark on some research um, protocols to look at uh, exactly what we get out of those, those techniques. And awake spine surgery is a very specific example of how regional anesthesiology positively impacts patient care. But if you will, share with us how blocks in general impact patient care. So I think, you know, um, <laughs> you, you may have opened a big can of worms there. I mean, I could talk for <laughs> hours about why I love why I love what I do. But um, there's, there was a time, Stacey, when regional anesthesia and nerve blocks were thought of as you know, it's a cute little add-on to an otherwise um, routine general anesthetic. It's it's something that um, you could do if you wanted to, but it, it's not all that necessary. And yeah, sure, it makes someone comfortable for a time. Um, and part of that was because the techniques were a little bit challenging to teach and learn because we didn't have imaging like an ultrasound. So the, the practitioners of regional anesthesia, you know, prior to, um, prior to when I was training, uh, were wizards. They, they knew exactly where the nerve would be underneath the skin and they could, they, you know, make it look really, um, really fancy. And so that, that kept it somewhat as a boutique practice, um, to a certain extent, although we, even then we recognized the benefits. I think what's changed are, are two things. One is ultrasonography has, has made it, um, so much more widespread in, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, you, you put the probe on the skin, you can see where your target is. And if you have any modicum of hand-eye coordination, you can, you know, get the, get the needle to where it needs to go to. So it's, it's become, it's put a good technique in a lot of people's hands, but more importantly, we are getting the right kind of data out of, out of our practice. And, and that's to say that we're seeing outcomes differences. If you do a regional anesthetic for um, uh, arteriovenous um, graft creation for, for vascular access for dialysis, for example, in the arm versus a general anesthetic, your graft lasts longer. It doesn't clot off to nearly the same extent as, as if you had a general. And that's an that's a specific example, but an example of how it's not just about keeping somebody comfortable for another couple of hours or avoiding opioids for another couple of hours. This is these are things that are they're changing 
changing outcomes. And, and so that is where the excitement comes and people see the value um, of, of doing blocks. It's not just a cool trick anymore. It's, it's something that we should be considering as the plan A versus the plan B. And you can just tell, talking to you, your passion for regional anesthesiology, what excites you the most about this subspecialty? Oh, where do I start? <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, I, I, what drew me into regional anesthesia and, and doing, um, you know, nerve blocks and that sort of thing, I think was the elegance of it. You know, like if you can get a patient through this tremendous trauma uh, of a surgical operation um, and and their central nervous system doesn't recognize that they're having surgery, that's incredible to me. I mean, you can do all these things with a, a nerve block or a spinal or an epidural and and uh, the patient basically doesn't even doesn't even acknowledge that they're having having surgery. That's incredible. So that's the the Elliot rather than the blunt instrument that is general anesthesia. You're basically using a technique that was invented in the uh, the 1860s um, to to get someone through that same surgery. So I, I think it's um, the, the elegance is one of the things. But I think the again getting back to that idea of the value of it. It's regional anesthesia is is cheap. It's fast. It's effective, and uh, and it. It, as we're seeing more and more, the the outcomes differences are starting to, you know, really become reported in the in the literature, and that's that's making people, um, you know, turn their heads. Another example is is hip replacement. So um, we have some with the adoption of some of these techniques to look at big data. We're seeing that in these NISQIP databases and other databases. If you do a spinal for your total hip replacement, your incidence of of bad outcomes like cardiac adverse events and and mortality are reduced compared to general anesthesia. And we didn't have that kind of data even as even as recently as five years ago. So those kinds of um, data coming out of the out of the literature are are think again turning turning heads and making people take notice of of these techniques. And to that point, who is a good candidate for regional anesthesia? You know, part of part of anesthesiology is you you everything is patient centered. So we we you know, it's hard to draw with a really broad brush, but um uh I, you know, What's interesting is we tip. We used to think of regional anesthesia as being appropriate for those people that are getting limb operations. So if you're having your elbow or hand operated on, you'd get a brachial plexus block. Or if you're having your ankle operated on, you'd get a popliteal sciatic block. Um, and of course, there are, are spinals and epidurals tossed into there as well for lower limb stuff. But what, what's, what's cool about our, our subspecialty is the explosion of other blocks for other things. And so um, a, a colorectal patient, for example, that that in many places would get just a, a general anesthetic and a, a PCA button to press for opioids or a prescription for, for pills, in our institution gets a fascial plane block, uh, a, a blockade of some of the nerves that come around the trunk so that when they wake up from their operation, their belly's numb. And, and so we're seeing 
even in the last couple of years, a lot of these trunk blocks being protocolized into our enhanced recovery pro uh, protocols so that, you know, blocks aren't just for orthopedic operations anymore. They're, therefore, we're seeing them in um, breast reconstruction. We're seeing them in colorectal surgery. We're seeing them in, in cystectomy. We're seeing them in cardiothoracic surgery. Um, so they're, they're, to, your, to your question, I there are fewer and fewer patients for whom a block wouldn't be appropriate. Um, so our, our, not our official motto, but our unofficial motto in our division is let no patient go unblocked. So turning to education then, back in 2017, the Regional Anesthesiology and Acute Pain Medicine Fellowship became one of the first programs in the entire country to be an ACGME accredited fellowship in that subspecialty. As the former director of this fellowship, and for those interested in regional anesthesiology, why should they train here at Duke? What do you think sets us apart? Well, that's a great question. I think that I, truly the instruction that our trainees get here at Duke is is second to none, it, be that as a resident trainee or as a fellow, um, you we, we get feedback uh, from the from the residents as they go out into practice, and they'll they'll, they'll sort of contextualize their training um, when they sort of look at how they're performing compared to their peers at these other private practices or even academic settings, and we'll get phone calls from them and emails saying, "Gosh, you know, I I didn't really appreciate how well I was trained." Until I got out in the real world and, and see see where I'm where I'm fitting in, um, and of course for fellowship that's just a, again a order of magnitude even greater. So that our fellows come out of our fellowship having seen every single block and lots of them, and you know you'll you'll the, we will teach you six different ways to to anesthetize uh, a shoulder, for example, and and. Uh, and so that's that's one of the things you you lots of fellowships offer some things um very few fellowships offer exposure to every single thing that you could ever want to see and and our fellowship is one of them we have an excellent mix, mix of all kinds of cases we have sick trauma patients that we do blocks for um not every fellowship offers uh, or, or or is you know really invested in blocks for for orthopedic trauma whereas our relationship with our orthopedic trauma surgeons is very very good and so they come to us and ask us hey i've got this patient with polytrauma can you do a catheter here or a catheter here and of course we, we do that and i think the final thing another thing that sets us apart is the mentorship so you get um uh which is very important so you know it's not just a technical specialty, but it's it's a, the practice of acute pain medicine and, and the mentorship that goes into creating a consultant level fellow is is something that's very, very uh, critical for the success of that fellow to go out and then immediately take on the role of being the regional anesthesia director at practice A or the um, uh, the you know the director of a fellowship program at Practice B. And we've seen both of those things happen time and time again. So we're really, really proud of our graduates out of the fellowship. They go out and they they make a difference. They um, they immediately create value wherever they are. 
You also helped launch a first-of-its-kind intensive hands-on workshop called POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound for the perioperative physician. And this year, the Duke Ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia preceptorships, they have been postponed due to the coronavirus. But talk about how Duke Anesthesiology is at the leading edge of the curve for using these ultrasound techniques. Again, something you're very passionate about as well. I got so many passions, Stacey, you know, <laughs> well, I'll, I mean, I'll, I think POCUS is, is fantastic. It's another one of those, of those outgrowths of the easy availability of ultrasound. And so when you have an ultrasound probe in your hand, uh, eight hours a day, naturally, uh, you'll begin to scan other things. And I think that's why, um, people in our department who, who do a lot of work with ultrasound have, have emerged as leaders in this field. Look, ultrasound is it's cheap, fast, and effective, both as a diagnostic tool and as an aid to procedures. And, and so naturally, um, it has come to the forefront of, of uh, anesthesiology practice in terms of placing lines, placing blocks, diagnosing conditions like hypotension or uh, um, hypoxemia, so you can scan the lungs and the heart and the and the vascular system and, and other places. So I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, we're, we're naturally set up as, as anesthesiologists to be, to be leaders in, in rapid assessment, diagnosis and treatment of those, those types of things. And, and ultrasound has, has just been one more tool to allow us to do that. And once these preceptorships can begin again, who is the person who can take part in this? Is it just here at Duke or can anybody from all over the nation come and train in these preceptorships? Oh, it's, it's wide open. No, it's, uh, we have, in fact, before we, before COVID and we had to sort of pause the preceptorship, we've had people fly in from, um, as far away as Europe and Brazil, uh, to, to come and hang out with us. And, and that's, and that's one of the again one of the gratifying things about working at a place like Duke is is that your level of expertise and the international reputation that that people in our division have um, draw people to come and learn from us and to um, and and to share experiences and that that's that's a, a real fun part of our practice. Um, so yeah, everyone's welcome. We, um, we, we hope that we can open up again soon. I hope that, uh, you know, I think everyone hopes that this is all over soon, but, uh, we, again, we're looking back to, we're looking forward to, to getting back to, uh, to meeting up with people in, in, in real, real life. And for the medical students who may be listening and may not have decided on which specialty to train in, share with us why you personally decided to go into the field of anesthesia and why you would encourage medical students to go into this field. Oh my gosh, anesthesia is the bomb. You should <laughs> definitely apply. Okay, if you if you haven't yet, do it now. You know, I, th I think um, so. I was a residency program director uh, for four years in New York, and so I. I've read a lot of applications to anesthesia residency. Um, everyone says they love physiology and pharmacology, and that, that's true. I think you it's it's hard to enjoy anesthesia if you don't like those those topics in medical school. Um, for me, I think one of the one of the things I've I didn't think about so much beforehand, but I've come to really enjoy is is being an expert in something and being that consultant. So. You know, if there's a, 
if there's a difficult airway procedure somewhere in the hospital on a Saturday night, I know that I am the person that's going to help that patient. Uh, or if there's a, uh, a, a block that needs done that, that, you know, needs a certain level of expertise, I can do that. Um, and so that's, it, it's cool. It's cool being an, an, an expert in something. Um, I also like, you know, my, my mom uh, sort of wondered what I was doing. And I went into medical school thinking I was going to be a family doctor, actually, because I came from a small town. And um, I really liked the idea of a, a sort of a small town family doc. But um, I eventually come, came to, to realize that, that despite the fact that I wouldn't have a long term relationship with these patients in anesthesia, I was able to safeguard them through their most critical time. And, and that created a bond with that patient that in a way is just as valid or, or you know, to me, sometimes more valid and more rewarding. Um, when I, you know, we're, we're, they're very, very anxious and, and scared. And, and uh, I, I really enjoy being able to, to, to coach someone through and, and, and get them through and, and uh, safely. I also think it's a nice, blend anesthesiology is a nice blend of hands-on medicine and thinking medicine um you know internal medicine is very very thinking oriented and surgery is a lot of hands-on stuff uh anesthesiology is the perfect blend of both uh, and, and i think finally i think you know i i as i ruled things out in medical school i i thought to myself i never want to be a on a plane somewhere and someone asks for a doctor and I put my hand up and say, yeah, I'm a doctor, but you know, I'm a, I'm a dermatologist or a, or someone that may not be able to help this patient. So again, getting back to the expertise thing, I, I like being an expertise expert in acute care medicine and being able to take care of those emergencies quickly. I think it's good insight that you do actually have that patient interaction. Absolutely. It, it's it's honestly one of the most rewarding parts of my day, day to day, is is having a sitting down. I'll literally sit down beside the patient's bed, have a chit chat with them, understand them, get to know them, where they're from, and, and what their concerns are and fears are. And it, it's an important, you know, ten to fifteen minutes that I have. And um, it's I, I go home with, um, you know memories and stories that I can I can reflect on from the day about how how I've made a difference. And I'd like to close each discussion with the question, what does changing the face of anesthesiology mean to you? So I yeah, that's a good question. I think that um in in our context in terms of what we're doing at Duke, I think that if someone remotely, someone in New York City, someone in California, someone in in Australia is sitting around their anesthesiology department and asking their colleagues, you know, I wonder what we should do for this particular situation. And if someone says, hey, I know what those people at Duke are doing, or let me let me tell you about something that I read recently that those those people at Duke are doing, that is our goal, is to get that kind of that kind of um, recognition. That's how that's how you change the face of, of anesthesiology. And this is completely off topic, but before we sign off, because it is the holiday season, <laughs> do you <laughs> mind sharing with us some of the holiday traditions in the Gadsden household? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we, 
uh, <laughs> a few years ago, my um, my wife thought it was a good idea that, that, to decorate our house with uh, a wreath in every window of our house. And we end up having, I didn't, had never appreciated how many windows we have in our house. And so we, we have 60 odd wreaths uh, currently hanging outside our house. Each one has to be carefully put in the window frame hanging from a, a fishing line. Uh, so it creates the illusion of the wreath just sort of sitting there. So that becomes our Black Friday activity. The whole family, we, we get up in the garage, pull all the wreaths down, and then spend the day sort of putting them up. Um, and uh, <laughs> that's that's one of them. I also try to get through the holiday season uh, watching It's a Wonderful Life and Love Actually without crying. That's <laughs> that's a big challenge in both of those movies. <laughs> Um, yeah, those, those, those are the main ones. Now, the 60 wreaths, do you need like your own shed, your own storage facility for all those wreaths in uh, the non-holiday season? <laughs> uh, they're, they're up on a special shelf in the garage, yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Gadsden, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Stacey, for inviting me. Absolutely. And thank you to all of the listeners for tuning in. You can find this podcast on the Duke Anesthesiology website, anesthesiology.duke.edu, as well as on Spotify and iTunes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Join us next time for another edition of the Inside Duke Anesthesiology podcast. Take care.